Well, this is our final sermon in this little short series on the epistles of Jesus from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And next week we'll go back to our series on 2 Corinthians, and, uh, which, we'll be back, which we'll do um, for three months, and then we'll take another break. Perhaps a longer break this time. Because there's a very natural dividing point after chapter 7, before chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians. But today we come to the letter of Jesus to the Laodiceans in in Revelation 3 beginning in verse 14. And this is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as also I, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his churches. Do you ever find yourself in the Bible? I hope so. When I was a very young Christian, I found myself in this passage, this letter to the Laodiceans. I can't remember whether I was in high school or college at the time, but it was just a few years after I came to Christ. I remember when I came to this passage that I felt like it was written for me and about me. And ever since that time, this passage has had a very real presence in my life. We are all sinners. We are all crooked, but we're crooked in different ways. This passage describes the particular way I am bent. I hate this about myself, but this is me. This is the direction my heart naturally goes. And I am so thankful to God for this passage. It has been such a blessing to me in my life. 
Only when you know how you're bent can you be alert to the tendencies of your heart. I hope you have found yourself in the Bible. I hope that you look for yourself in the Bible. We are always finding others in the Bible. Oh, that is my spouse. Or that is my child. Or that is my friend or my parent. I hope we find ourselves as well. If you can't list the idolatries you regularly struggle with, or if you do not frequently pray about and repent of those idolatries, I think you're living in a dream world. James describes this very thing in chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. He says that the person who reads the Bible but isn't convicted and doesn't change is like a man who looks at himself in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. One of the reasons that many people don't get much from the Bible is because they don't take it personally. They don't read it as if it's written to them. They never ask, what is this saying to me? It's pretty clear that the churches which received strong rebukes from Jesus in these seven letters were not thinking that they needed to be strongly rebuked. This is nowhere clearer than in this letter to the Laodiceans. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, guess what? We don't get letters from Jesus addressed to us. We have to read other people's mail in the confidence that Jesus has written to us in these letters and stories as well. But... If we're not determined to listen to what the Lord has to say to us in these passages, we won't be able to hear. Again, if we're not determined to listen, we won't be able to hear. It's just too easy to not hear the challenge. I have three points that I'd like to make from this passage this morning. The first one is that it is wrong to claim or think that Jesus cannot be displeased with believers. It is wrong to claim or think that Jesus cannot be displeased with believers. This kind of thinking has become very common in many churches. In our day, it's popular to paint Jesus as a constant affirmer. Some preachers take the commendations in the Bible, which are written about those who are really seeking him with all their hearts, 
and apply them to everyone, even those who aren't doing so well. But these letters show us that Jesus does not just affirm. Jesus affirms when there's something to affirm. But Jesus rebukes when there's something to rebuke. Often he starts with affirmation. But he never affirms just to affirm. In every generation, there is a favorite way to portray Jesus, or perhaps a number of favorite ways to portray Jesus. But knowing that is the case, what protects us from having a skewed perception of who he really is? As opposed to just going along with the way people like to portray Jesus today. The only way to protect ourselves from that is to actually go back to the Bible over and over again and see what, it, what picture it paints of Jesus. And what do we see here in this letter and in these seven letters that we've been looking at? Jesus is not always pleased with his people. He often has things against his people. That's how he says it. I have this against you, he says. Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two letters of the seven which only receive commendation from Jesus. The other five all receive rebuke as well. Laodicea doesn't even get a commendation. It's just rebuke. In Christ's letter to Laodicea, therefore, we see how wrong this modern notion is of the positive only Jesus. You know, vomiting isn't something we like to talk about, much less do. It's one of those ugly realities that we all experience, but rarely mention. Every once in a while, you'll hear someone say something like, that makes me want to puke. And that means that that person is really disgusted. But that is the language that Jesus uses here in this letter in verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now the translators of the ESV have made it a little bit more polite and have said, I'll spit you out of my mouth. But the word is not the word for spit, it's the word for vomit in the Greek. I think one of the reasons folks move in this direction is because they don't see how Jesus' displeasure with his people squares with the fact that we are accepted not based on our own righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Christ. Jesus loves and accepts the sinner, but Jesus still hates the sin. And just because we are off in one area, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't notice the good as well. These letters show us that over and over again. Jesus' acceptance is acceptance with agenda. 
He's got a loving, holy agenda for each of us as He accepts us as we are. He wants to hold sway in our lives. He wants us to be filled with Him and not with ourselves. The true believer is accepted totally on account of Christ's righteousness. But that doesn't mean God leaves us as we are. He wants to fill us with His Holy Spirit and help us to live by the power that He provides. And all this is in love. Just because Jesus says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, doesn't mean He's stopped loving these people. You, we know this. Any parent knows this. Sometimes your kids do stuff that makes you want to throw up. That doesn't mean you don't love them anymore. In fact, your feelings about what they did are intensified by the fact that you do love them so much. You're so much more upset. If the kid down the street did that, it would bother you, but not nearly as much. Jesus shows his love by rebuking and disciplining his children. That's what verse 19 says. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. These epistles of Jesus are a glimpse into his heart. Even when he expresses disgust, it's in love. You know, there's a passage in 1 Paul, of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. No, 5.14, yes. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. You see from this passage that there are different ways to love different kinds of people based on where they are and what's going on in their lives. Affirmation is not the only tool in the toolbox. Some people need a rebuke. And you can't love those people without giving them what they need. In 1997, I preached a sermon entitled, a sermon of apology entitled, The Relentless Challenger. Some of you remember it. Christianity that is only challenge and only correction is dangerous. And that's why I was apologizing and repenting of that. But positive only Christianity is just as dangerous. The second point I'd like to make is that God hates it when we have a lofty view of ourselves. God hates it when we have a lofty view of ourselves. Now, notice the pronoun there is the it, it's not the you. God doesn't hate you when you have your lofty view of yourself, but God hates it. He hates the fact that you have a lofty view of yourself. And here we need to dive into the meaning of verses 15 and 16 for a moment. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This, is, this verse has left a lot of people wondering what Jesus means here by the lukewarmness which makes him nauseous. 
At first, it's easy to think that he means hot as sort of on fire for the Lord. And cold as having no faith at all. Or being in complete rebellion. But on deeper reflection, this doesn't make sense. Because he says, I wish that you were either hot or cold. But since you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. How could Jesus be saying that he wished that they had no faith at all? Or were completely rebellious? I think the key to the understanding of the passage is the word for at the beginning of verse 17. And go back to the slide before this so they can see that for in context if you don't mind. Thank you. I will spit you out of my mouth for you say I am rich. You see that? That's the key in my opinion. That connects verse 15 and 16 with verse 17. In other words, Jesus goes on in verse 17 to explain what he means by the lukewarm in verse 15 and 16. In verse 17, he clearly contrasts their self-assessment with their actual life. They think they're rich and prosperous and have no need. In reality, they're poor, blind, naked, and poverty-stricken. And I think this is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about lukewarm. I think he means that if a person has a hot view of himself, when in reality he is cold, then the two mixed together form a lukewarm person. If a person thinks he's rich, when he really is rich, that's a hot person. Like the church in Smyrna, in chapter 2, verse 9, that says, you are rich. I know your poverty, but you are rich. They were a hot church, even though suffering persecution. When a person who is cold knows that he's cold... I'm sorry, I skipped line. If a person thinks he's rich, when he's really rich, that's a hot person. I already said that. Never mind. When a person who is cold knows that he's cold, that is a cold person. Like, for instance, when Peter first met Jesus. Remember in, I think it's Luke 5, and he said, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. He realized who he was. He had no pretense that he was anything more. He realized that he was undeserving of any attention by Jesus. That's a cold person. Either of these Jesus can live with. But when wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked people say that they are rich or think that they are rich, prosperous, and need nothing, then you have a lukewarm person and a nauseous Jesus. That was the problem of the Pharisees, wasn't it? They thought they were holy and clean and didn't need a doctor. They were like the older son who thought that he had been faithful to his father all of his life. They think they they thought they were doing great even though they were doing terrible. That's why Jesus rebuked them so soundly. 
And that's why Jesus is so equally strong here in talking about the little Pharisees that have grown up in the hearts of the people of Laodicea. We live in a world, a society, which encourages this very thing. They want you to believe you're wonderful even if you're stuck up and lazy and selfish. On every side you are taught to believe in yourself, to believe that you can do it, to believe that you have everything you need in yourself. The world celebrates what nauseates Jesus. And it's easy for us to be influenced. And sadly, the church has been heavily influenced. Jesus wishes that we were hot or cold. In other words, he wishes we were either thinking we're doing well and actually doing well and fellowshipping with the Lord and coming to him to receive his supply. Or... He wishes that we were cold, that we were doing badly and recognizing the fact that we were doing badly and living in humility and repentance. That would be cold. But since they were doing badly but thought they were doing well, they were lukewarm and Jesus wanted to spit them out of his mouth. When we act or even think that we are self-sufficient. We make Jesus want to vomit. But he also is so ready to reach out to us in grace and give us all kinds of help when we humble ourselves and come to him instead of being satisfied with ourselves. For me, it's so easy to forget that I am wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked in myself. It's so easy for me to feel healthy when I'm actually sick. And therefore to continue on without going to the doctor. With a capital D. Jesus himself told us that he is the good physician. And that he came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And if you read it carefully, you'll see that actually everybody is sick. And that he came for those who know they're sick. But this doesn't just apply to individuals. In fact, one of the most dangerous churches is that which is the church that doesn't think it has any serious flaws. It's the one that thinks that if everybody else was like them, things would be going along great in the church of Jesus Christ. In my opinion, back in the 80s and 90s, A number of us here at GPC had a real problem with this kind of attitude. I hope that God has cured us of it. The third and final point I'd like to make this morning is that the key to life 
is coming to Jesus. The key to life is coming to Jesus. I mean, that's, it's amazing, you know, all the time, you just almost like dreams, people talk about somebody who knows the key to life. What is it? What is it that really is the key to life? Well, we have it. The key to life is coming to Jesus. Jesus is the one who has what we need. That's why he calls us to come to him to buy gold and clothing and healing for our eyes so that we might see. Jesus is the one that we need. That's why he calls us to open the door so he will come in and sup with us. But in order for this this to happen, in order for us to get the key to life, we need two things. Number one, we need to be persuaded that we have a that we in ourselves are totally inadequate. That what we have in this world is totally inadequate. We are so easily satisfied with ourselves. We're so easily satisfied with what we get from our world. We need to be persuaded that in fact we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked in ourselves. We need to be persuaded that this world's gold is fool's gold. And the second thing we need is we need to be persuaded that we desperately need Jesus. That in Jesus is found all that we ever need. All that our souls ever really long for. We need to be persuaded that he gives true gold. That's why the passage doesn't say come come to me for gold. They already had gold. It says come come to me and buy gold refined by fire. You see back then they would mix things in the gold to cheapen it. Now we use gold that's not uh, pure gold all the time and we don't think of it this way. But to them it was cheapened. It was like a counterfeit. It wasn't real gold. But Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you the gold refined by fire, not the cheap gold of the world. And he supplies us with garments that cover the shame of our nakedness. And he heals our eyes so that we're able to see what's really around us and what is really true. Both of these are essential. Sometimes Satan whispers in our ear, you got this. You have what it takes. You are a winner. And sometimes he whispers in our ear, you are worthless. So unworthy of being loved. God can't help you. Wanting us to think that our sinfulness is greater than God's grace. But no, the two keys are seeing our own need and seeing God's readiness to receive us in our need. And then one final point. Being a Christian is more than 
believing. It's knowing God. It's a relational thing. Now, biblically, often the word believing or faith is used in a relational way. So I don't want to poo-poo that. But the fact is, it's more than just something that goes on in your brain. It is knowing a person, having a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, I know that some emphasize this so much to the exclusion of other things that other people react against it and tend to poo-poo this personal relationship with Jesus stuff. But here it is, right here in this epistle. Jesus wants us to open the door so he can come in. So that, he, so that we can sup together. That's relational language. That's not get your doctrine in order language. That's relational language. And we already read the letter to Ephesus. The first of the seven. Which made clear that all the orthodoxy and proper decision making is not enough. For they had lost their love For Christ, their first love. Jesus is not just out to reform our behavior. He wants our hearts. Behavior flows from the heart. But it's easy to try to fix your behavior on the outside and leave the heart untouched on the inside. And the problem won't go away. Where is Jesus Christ in your life? He has to be in one of two places. He's either in you, vibrantly alive, enjoying sweet fellowship with you, or he's outside knocking and calling. And you should notice in this passage... That Jesus doesn't only knock, he also calls. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. So Jesus is out there knocking and calling at the door. Now I'm not saying that this is a one-time thing. Unfortunately, the nature of the human heart is that we have to keep opening the door and welcoming Jesus in over and over again. We keep showing him the door, you know, throwing him out the window with, our, with the choices that we make. It's like the, what they say about the, the uh, passage in Romans. You know, the problem with a living sacrifice is they keep climbing off the altar. And that's the nature of our hearts as well. We, We keep throwing Jesus out of our lives. We have to keep opening the door and welcoming him back in. And now as we come to the Lord's Supper, when you go to a restaurant by yourself, the typical question you get from the person who welcomes you is, are you eating alone tonight? So let me ask you that question now. Are you eating alone this morning? The passage has just called us.
to recognize that Jesus is out there asking to come in that he might sup with us. But you can go through this alone, without Jesus. You can go through the whole Christian thing and the whole church thing alone. You will have missed the heart of it all. But you can do it. But don't do it. Welcome Jesus. Come in humility. Recognize who you are. Recognize what he has given. And welcome him in to sup with you. As you go forward. Let us pray. For all the times we drive you away from ourselves. For all the times that we exclude you and run from you. But thank you, Lord, that you forgive sinners. And we come now as sinners and we desire, O Lord, to have you come in and fellowship with us. And Lord, as we eat of this sacrament today, we know that you want us to experience fellowship with you as we do so. So Lord, we don't want to just eat bread and wine. We want to feed on you. So help us, O Lord, in our weakness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.